0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The EPIC Virtual Charter School Board votes to increase transparency in the hopes of halting termination proceedings. Under reforms, EPIC's learning fund will be transferred from the for-profit management company governing the school to EPIC itself. Neva, do you think this will be enough to save EPIC?
1: Well I think uh, there's a lot more that has to occur before we know the end of this story and I think I think this kind of 11th hour hail mary uh, <laughs> attempt at a settlement uh, uh, which we don't know how that's going to uh, how that's going to be received I think uh, uh, the indication was that uh, they would see how close how close they were and and uh, what the terms uh, of concessions were going to be so a lot of questions I think uh, clearly with this looming May 12th and 13th two-day trial date set that seems to be the thing that's pushing pushing uh, on all of this uh, that's occurring this week so we'll have to see It's uh, as we've said many times uh, uh, over many months this is such a complex issue with so many parties involved I mean the Attorney General's office the State Auditor and Inspector attorneys for epic uh, uh, the uh, the uh, virtual uh, statewide virtual charter school board all of these entities so it's uh, it's going to be a fascinating story as it continues to unfold
2: ryan well and this only addresses a small part of a very complex picture and so you know even part of me wonders if what they're trying to do here is to not settle out the entire dispute but to try to take something off the table. Uh, you know, they see that they've got two days, and so maybe the, the items and issues in dispute, if they can narrow that down before they get to their two-day trial, uh, that might be advantageous to one or both parties to be able to focus in on some of the more complex issues. I mean, we have a we have a, a, an auditor's report that's, you know, hundreds of pages, uh, whenever you, you know, total everything together, that have you know, a number of allegations in them. You know, this just is one of them. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I think that... Uh, they recognize that they're in trouble settlement is always good the other thing that you know and this is kind of a novel idea maybe what if I were epic I'd come to the table right now and say in between now and this trial date let's try to mediate this thing Mm -hmm. Um, you know and, and mediation is good for a lot of reasons one come to some resolution and settlement but also to narrow the issues and you know that's you know rather than trying to do it on your own if you have an independent third party uh neutral mediator there they can really help narrow some of these issues so if the uh if the the board that hears this trial isn't going to budge on whether this is going to be a two-day trial you know mediation in the meantime might be might be useful um but well i mean we'll and we'll see um yeah i I think that it's doubtful that this Uh, standalone settlement offer uh, ends uh ends everything
1: and i think you're right i think there's so many pieces to this i mean last fall the attorney general's office i mean when they uh the uh, released investigative audit came out uh, they said that there might have been uh, violations uh, to state laws and that the contract terms for the the management side uh, might have uh, issues with good cause so that's one thing Uh, EPIC has been in district court trying to keep uh, uh, the release of their learning fund uh, the spending records uh, from uh, the auditor and inspector. That's been a big fight. A lot of questions uh, related to how the the monies have moved from these different entities that EPIC has mm-hmm. and so uh, there, there are so many unanswered questions. I mean the audit raised a lot of issues but uh, now we'll see whether these are brought to light in the courtroom or in some mediation or uh, out-of-court settlement.
2: Yeah and if I, if I run that board, one thing that would be a, a line in the sand for me would be EPIC's continued uh, actions to avert uh, transparency. Uh, as long as they're trying to hide the ball on money uh, and numbers of students and or on anything, any information that they are currently in court trying to hide from the state of Oklahoma and the state auditor, if they won't put that on the table, there's no settlement out there that if I were on that board, that would be uh that would satisfy me because ultimately you know these are taxpayer dollars and these are the students of uh these are oklahoma public school students and we have a right to transparency there if that's not part of a settlement agreement i don't think it goes anywhere
1: well and i think i think you're exactly right ryan i mean when you when you look at some of the issues the two hundred thousand dollar plus uh what was considered an improper transfer from epics uh, student learning fund account that went to pay a payroll shortage in their uh, California charter school, EPIC's California charter school. I mean, big questions that uh, the auditor and inspectors raised, and I think all of those uh, still have been left largely unanswered.
0: Tulsa Public Schools joins a growing list of districts filing legal action against the State Board of Education. This all stems from the board settling a lawsuit to, in essence, provide equal funding for charter schools as public schools. Oklahoma City Schools has already called for an injunction against any reallocation of revenue.
2: Ryan, do these schools have a case here? Absolutely. They did. <clears throat> Absolutely. They do. I mean, I think that um, you know, central to all of this is whether or not the state board of education had that authority uh, to allocate funds as part of a settlement in a way that goes against uh, the state constitution and you know, goes against state law. Um, I think that 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 is a very strong argument that every one of these school districts brings to the table. Of course, there are also procedural arguments about, you know, whether or not there was enough notice, that the type of vote that was taken. Uh, you know, should should the uh, the board have had that authority to to act when it did? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are those are questions in and of themselves. But I think the, the actual authority of being able to transfer dollars out of brick and mortar schools. Uh, and put them into virtual charter schools, uh, or even charter schools themselves, uh, brick and mortar charter schools, um, raises enough questions that you know, this will definitely have its day in court unless we see the legislature step up mm-hmm. and, um, and provide a resolution before this happens. And we saw you know, last week, uh, we talked about legislation that had been introduced that would take uh, money from the medical marijuana allocation to the state's common ed fund. Uh, And use that to fund brick and mortar charter schools, but not virtual charter schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that that uh, even the bill's author said that that has a long ways to go between now uh, and the end of session at May. But I think everybody would probably prefer a resolution uh, like that rather than roll the dice going into court.
1: well I think it's interesting I mean the the school districts that are uh, stepping forward on this issue I mean Tulsa Oklahoma City Public Schools and then SkyTook, took Owasso and Jinx which Mm -hmm. largely have said through their attorneys that uh, uh, that they kind of support this action but not necessarily are are directly involved but what about all of the other school districts across the state of Oklahoma I don't see this uh, this uh, large kind of swelling up of uh, a support I mean behind these these large public school districts in trying to advance this uh, through um, you know through court action I think uh, I think what many say is uh, it remains to be seen that the 4-3 board action uh, it may or may not uh, whatever the whatever is construed as having been proper in terms of the allocation of the funds that the, the point remains that they did have the right to settle, uh, settle a suit. And so I think uh, the fine points are what have to be uh, worked out. And I think in this instance, uh, we're seeing really the same players um, on the statewide scene, supportive of the state uh, superintendent. I mean, these are some of the strongest allies of Superintendent Hofmeister, uh, who have uh, sided with her in this instance where uh, the, the vote did not uh, go the way that
2: she had intended well and they've i mean you you do see start to see some school districts that don't sponsor charter schools stepping up uh and getting into the fray here and and they they recognize that. well we might not lose money immediately out of this you know this might not take money out of uh, out of our uh coffers immediately but if you begin to take money out of the Uh, common ed fund in general at a state level it could have a funding effect on on school districts whether or not they fund charter schools so um, that number of schools uh, may increase as superintendents and school boards begin to realize that even if they're not playing in the charter school uh, market right now that it could have an effect on their their bottom line. I
1: would think if they had been able to rally uh, a number of other districts right up front, that would already be happening. And at least at this point, there doesn't seem to be that indication of that broad support statewide, but rather in these large large metropolitan school districts seem to be the ones that have really uh, come to the forefront quickly.
0: The state Republican Party elects former lawmaker John Bennett as its new chairman. The controversial selection of the former Salazar representative was criticized by several groups, including Oklahoma's Council on American-Islamic Relations. During his time in the legislature, Bennett repeatedly attacked Muslim Americans. Neva, what do you think of the Republican Party's choice in picking Bennett?
1: Well, I think think we have to keep it in perspective. I mean, both the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, as they come together uh, to elect their State uh, chairs, vice chairs. I mean, they're officials that are involved in the party organization statewide. It's a very different. Uh, it's it's a very Different proposition than people running for statewide elective mm-hmm. office or people involved in in other elements of the the party, active actively involved with the candidates and and other organizations. So I think um, in this instance we had a competitive race. We had four people running for state GOP chair. Uh, John Bennett did win on the first uh, ballot uh, over the uh, three opponents. Uh, he's someone that uh, is uh, it, during his time in the legislature. There's no question in the house he was a lightning rod he liked to tune it up he knew how to uh, get the rhetoric going Uh, sometimes that uh, that sometimes that doesn't serve all parties well but in this instance I think we have someone who uh, takes the takes the reins of the of the organization in terms of the grassroots 77 county organization and'll we'll head that up uh, uh, for the for the Republicans and he's someone uh, that from a from a profile beyond what we what you just described someone who's a retired uh, combat marine someone who has who is currently a, a pastor someone involved uh, and long time involved in Republican party politics so uh, not a surprise that this type of candidate is successful uh, running for this
2: type of office right well you know i think that there are a lot of words to describe it i think sad embarrassing uh come to mind but you know i I would also say that you know it, it reflects a fundamental fight within the republican party for the soul of the republican party right now following donald trump's four years in the white house uh, there is a real question as to who the leader of the Republican Party is. Um, the, and you know, the folks that show up at a party convention, you know, I've been to a lot of Democratic Party conventions. Um, they represent a core of a party, uh, but they're not the only core. I mean, the, the core folks that show up at the Republican Party convention, you know, there are people that are, you know, just as conservative, if not more conservative or conspiratorial that wouldn't ever step forward uh, into a banquet hall at a hotel and participate in the convention. And so, you know, there's I mean, there are real divisions within that party. We saw it when the uh, w- when one of the chairmen for the party had to stand up and uh, preface Senator Jim Enhoff's speech at the Republican Party convention saying that he expected them not to boo. Uh, because jim inhofe senator inhofe apparently you know wasn't vociferous enough uh in his uh opposition to voting to uh, uh, uh allow the electoral votes to be cast for joe biden to become president um you know kind of the same thing with senator lankford i mean he's got a primary opponent from the right because he switched from protesting the certification of the of the election results to casting a ballot to certify the election results and you know that's that's a real fight within this party um and, you know, I said that there are different constituencies. Some of those constituencies are in leadership. You saw some of that from Jim Inhofe uh, at, the, at the convention saying, I know folks might not want to hear this, but this is what you need to hear. Um, but you also need to hear that from legislative leaders. And it's, you know, if, if you don't want to be defined as a party by, by your chairman, you don't have to be. Uh, but then it's incumbent upon you as Republicans and Republican leaders around the state to stand up and call that out whenever, whenever you need to.
1: And, and I, think the, I think both parties uh, struggle with the, this, this kind of uh, uh, evolution of party activists uh, on, on both extremes. Uh, coming to these types of uh, conventions and being engaged in trying to, you know, select leadership. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, folks that that vote every time, uh, every election, folks that give uh, their dollars to candidates they believe in, folks who go out and knock doors, folks who are engaged in the process at other levels, may not necessarily be the same folks, the 1,200-plus delegates that were at the uh, Republican convention this past weekend— or who will be at the next Democratic uh, convention? So I think we have to keep a perspective that uh, that in this age where every delegate and every uh, person who ascribes to a party affiliation wants to engage in in giving their opinion, they certainly have multiple opportunities through social media, and I think we're seeing that more and more. And I think that is changing the grassroots activism uh, as it always does, cycle to cycle, depending on which parties in in power, both in Washington.
0: D. D.C. as well as uh, here in Oklahoma. Right, and while it not, might not seem that important to our listeners why we care about the Chairman of the GOP, it has been a springboard for several of our uh, – Matt Pinnell, Gary Jones – all went on from being the GOP Chair to other elected offices. So it could actually mean something fairly important for the future of the, the elected officials. That's true. I mean, I, th- we can see examples where
1: you could argue that it was a springboard, but oftentimes those folks have already had a profile, have already had uh, a statewide presence, even before they became a, a state party chair or vice chair. So that's not necessarily the uh, prerequisite, but it mm-hmm. certainly is something that does elevate a profile, does give them an opportunity to uh, make statements. but again, Again, I think uh, those statements are not uh, always reflective of the, the membership, just like we could say that about any national organization or any state organization today.
2: Yeah, Senator Anhoff said uh, that it was uh, difficult for some of the members of the of the convention to appreciate what he was trying to say and what he was trying to do and what he tried to do with his vote uh, and his voice uh, in, the, in the certification of the election results and in the lead up to the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, and, you know, I, I think that he was, he was probably genuine in that to, to some extent, but uh, the reason it's so hard for people to understand uh, what he's saying is that leaders like Jim Menhoff uh, and Senator Lankford uh, and Representative Mark Wayne Mullen and, uh, you know, you, you can just kind of, and, and John Bennett, have uh, given legitimacy and credibility uh, to the most uh, outrageous and at times dangerous conspiracy theories about the, the last election and some of the other uh, moments of uh, recent American politics and so it's it's incumbent upon them to change that if they if they give credibility and legitimacy to that they shouldn't be surprised whenever their constituencies, whether they're sitting at home on on Twitter uh, or uh, coming to a convention to vote for a party chair, they shouldn't be surprised whenever they see the most extreme elements rise to the top.
0: The NCAA issues a warning to state lawmakers over a bill to ban transgender students from participating in sporting events in public schools or universities. The organization's board released a statement, in essence, saying if it would withhold all events in the state if the legislation becomes law. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this threat?
2: Well, I hope that they hold true to it. If uh, if we... In Oklahoma, passed one of these uh, one of these bills, and we see them all around the country. And you know, these these bills aren't about uh, trans kids playing in sports. Just like the the old bathroom bills uh, weren't about trans kids going to the appropriate bathroom, uh, they are about exploiting a political moment against a marginalized group of individuals. Um, I mean, and on one hand, it's it's wonderful that we live in 2021 and we can have these, you know, very important. And nuanced conversations about gender and sexuality, uh, and, and what all of those things can mean uh, to uh, uh, an individual's self identity um, and self expression. Those are just you know what wonderful nuanced conversations to be able to think about ourselves and our friends and our community. Um, but often those conversations uh, are you know run in the face of a lot of dogma, and that dogma is you know centuries old. Uh, and, and it's backed up by some very powerful forces. And you see politi- politicians exploit that. And that's exactly what we've seen here. You know, the NCAA, um, you know, this. if you look at a group that ought to have a stake in this, you know, they've come forward and said they have a very thoughtful process as to how they are going to incorporate trans people into sports uh, appropriately and safely, um, and and it's an ongoing conversation, and that's what this needs to be. And you know, really, what we see here is a piece of legislation that's meant to you know, you know directly target uh, trans kids uh, for political points. And you know, hopefully, um, this threat, which if this passes, I doubt it's a threat. I think they'll follow through on it. Uh, hopefully, the NCAA stepping up here would be a loud enough megaphone. To get the legislature to step off this bill
0: and even
1: well I you know I I think that when you look at uh, you look at the fact that Mississippi Arkansas Tennessee governors have already uh, signed similar bills into law we've got 30 states looking at it Oklahoma being one this is not I mean this is something that's being twisted I think uh, it is more about uh, being a pro-female athlete bill it's more about uh, 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 saving women's sports and and uh, allowing for the opportunity for Uh, there to you know there to be the uh, uh, competitive athletics and you know when you look back I mean this is something that has uh, that has become an issue it was talked about last fall there were congressional uh, uh, resolutions that uh, that were put forward I mean so this has been a broad discussion taking place across the country. But when you have people, I remember Martina Navratilova, I mean, 18 uh, Grand Slam <laughs> tennis uh, singles titles. I mean, she said that uh, sex segregation, uh, when she was asked about this some months ago, that it was the only way to achieve equality for girls and women. And I mean, she she made the point, and I think many are making the point, that uh, that you all you're doing uh, with a discussion of trying to move this direction and uh, not have these uh, sex-specific athlete, athletic teams is you're reducing the opportunity for females. Uh, female athletes uh, uh, and and really women's sports altogether can be largely threatened. So I think this is trying to uh, trying to draw too many things into one basket, uh, try to confuse uh, the public, which I think by and large uh, uh, the broad sentiment is uh, let's keep what we have in place. I mean we've done well to bring about uh, uh women's sports bring it to the forefront uh, you know title IX, many things that have occurred through time that have uh, that have given girls and women the opportunity to excel in sports and now to kind of blur this line and move this other direction i don't think there's going to be broad public sentiment in oklahoma or across the country for this type of action and i think the ncaa while they, while they do have an obligation to make sure that there, that there is an environment for, as they describe it, self, uh, safe, healthy, and, and uh, free of discrimination, that's one thing. But to move this direction and, uh, uh, and take on this discussion with the threat of taking away um, uh, the, the opportunity for uh, teams to come into states like Oklahoma, play softball, other you know, championship tournaments, would be highly regrettable.
0: Lawmakers introduced legislation to help protect Oklahomans from astronomical bills from February's winter storms. The bills provide extra time for utility companies to recoup their losses from the event and recommend pulling expenses into larger bonds or loans. Neva, do you expect these measures to make it to the governor's desk?
1: I think they will, and I think uh, I think what we saw is a very quick, very concerted, and Excellent effort on the part of all parties of uh, these lawmakers uh, initiating uh, uh, this legislation to to really deal with something that could have been tremendously burdensome on everyone in Oklahoma when you think about the average. Uh, uh, Gas bill being about a hundred dollars, and then the projection said that it could be approaching two thousand dollars a month over six or seven or eight months. I mean, the impact on families and singles and and folks all across Oklahoma, businesses. I mean, would have been would have been uh, just unsustainable. And so, I think uh, coming up with this uh, ability to. Um, have the uh, the ability to come up with these bonds, to move this direction, to spread this out over a longer period of time, to have the, uh, uh, not, only, not only put this into place, but have the structure in terms of the Corporation Commission involved and the other oversight uh, agencies involved, I think uh, uh, makes it a very uh, certain and a very well thought out uh, proposal. And, uh, you know, I applaud all the parties involved because I think this is a case of where You had a problem. You needed a very quick solution, and they all got together at the table, hammered out the details, and at least from all appearances, on the on the upshot of this, uh, they've done a fine job.
2: Right. Well, and you you talk about all the parties involved. Uh, Senator James Lee Wright. I I doubt that when Senator Lee Wright started this legislative session, (laughs) uh, you know that he thought that this was going to be. Uh, the, the lion's work that he would take on. And he really has. And I mean, his, he's led a lot of these conversations and negotiations, uh, some extraordinarily complicated. I mean, you try to, if you, you know, just reading the solution to me, uh, kind of makes my eyes glaze over, uh, because it, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that it works. Uh, but, you know, good, uh, good on them for coming together to, to help Oklahoma ratepayers here, because it would be extraordinarily debilitating for a lot of Oklahoma families. Um, yeah, I think a, a second part of this, and, you know, there's obviously the, the, the immediate urgent need of, you know, what do, what do we do right now to make sure that Oklahomans don't get bills in the mail for $1,000 or $2,000 uh, that they needed just to, because we're not talking about comfort here. Uh, you know, we're not talking about cooking with gas and, uh, you know, heating heat up some macaroni. We're talking about keeping your house warm enough to live in. I mean, it was a life or a death situation here. And so, you know, people weren't out there jacking up their uh, their thermostats just for the heck of it. I mean, this was r- the real thing. Um, so how do we keep people from having $1,000, $2,000 bills just for that? Um, but then the second part of it is um, we, we need to recognize that we live uh, at a moment where the climate crisis is upon us. I mean, it's not some distant thing in the future. We are going to experience uh, more devastating, more extreme, uh, more unpredictable weather events uh, moving forward for a uh, for an, un- an unknown period of time now, and they're probably only going to get worse. And so, <clears throat> the state of Oklahoma should really know what what were these providers doing in the run up to this. Uh, we we saw these forecasts for a very long time. I mean. Not, you know, a lot of these groups have their own forecasting divisions. I mean, they're not just watching uh, Emily Sutton on Channel Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're also watching. You know, they've got their own people that they hire internally to do measurements and forecasting. Did they know about this? Did they buy enough in advance? Were they caught off guard? Um, you know, those. You know, those are real questions because we can't do this again. Um, I mean, a, a bailout of this nature. We can if this if we have another uh, devastating. Uh, cold snap uh, at the end of this year beginning of 2022 you know what do we do then if we're caught off guard you know so the the second part of this conversation needs to be about preparing for next time
1: And I think the other thing that we need to take into account in the preparation is the fact that in Oklahoma's case I mean we weren't like Texas I mean we weren't like states where literally they didn't have the resources they had not bought the billions of extra dollars worth of uh, energy leading up uh, to what was happening very quickly and to be able to keep energy flowing uh, throughout the state so I think that uh, I think it's like any it's like any uh, instance like this where you're dealing with a disaster it is important to prepare and i think uh, what we've seen is uh, that the just kind of the attitude of being more proactive uh, even beyond what has been true in the past i think is a good it uh, is a good indication that uh, we're going to have folks with all hands on deck looking at this going forward
0: Aneva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.